the thing about uncertainty in financial decisions or any decision is that there's a behavioral psychology component to it. And uh, whether you call it like the paradox of choice or analysis paralysis or, um, but when, when there's a lot of complexity and a lot of different trade-offs that you have to make, which is the name of the game for personal finances, it's so easy to just do nothing. Like I'm overwhelmed with information. I'm just going to not do anything. But the problem is that doing nothing is actually doing something. It is making a choice. Welcome to Founder Chats by Bear Merchants, where we chat with founders and hear how they started and grew their businesses. This week, Brian talked with Will Pang, the CEO and co-founder of Northstar, a financial wellness and benefits platform. Prior to founding Northstar, Will worked in venture capital. In fact, his firm was an early investor in Coinbase, Guideline, Even, and Oscar. Inspired by the positive change that fintech can have on people's lives, Will set out to solve the inequality of financial guidance, and that's how Northstar came to fruition. Hey, Will, thanks so much for joining the podcast. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so let's get started where we usually do. Where did you get started on your entrepreneurial journey? Where did I get started? Well, um, I, have kind of, I have a kind of a weird background. My, my college major was this applied math major called Operations Research and Financial Engineering. Um, and what, it was really interesting academically because we learned how to build a lot of the products like collateralized debt obligations that uh, actually caused the collapse of the economy in 2008. And right. uh, so I... I um, felt a bit morally uh, misaligned with that, as well as practically um, really difficult to, to find a job in that market. So um, I actually ended up uh, in the startup world. Um, I'm a self-taught designer um, and uh, worked at uh, a couple different startups early in my career uh, that both got acquired by Facebook. Um, and uh, then after that, went to uh, spend some time in the venture capital world. Uh, so uh, really interesting to see uh, the investing side of things and has helped uh, me learn a lot of the kind of business and investing context. And finally, the culmination of that is today uh, uh, have been uh, running a company that I started with my friend Matt uh, about five years ago. That's awesome. Yeah, I imagine the experience of going through the uh, that financial um, uh, education is sort of like I imagine if you have a you get a degree in like chemistry, there's probably some class where like, hey, well, here's how you make a bomb and here's how you like create explosions. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, yeah, like academically, that seems fine. But then, yeah, when you see like, oh, well, here's sort of the mechanism that was taught um, to the people who um, created the financial collapse, that probably was a little bit unnerving for you to be like, oh, I don't <laughs> I don't know that this is a good thing for us to be doing. <laughs> Yeah, there are parts of it that, that were, were kind of interesting. Like I said, it's academically interesting. Um, but uh, beyond a certain point, um, it, it felt to me that a lot of financial products that exist uh, on Wall Street are um, kind of derivatives. They're, they're making money off of other kind of financial constructs, right? Um, right. So uh, really, some of them are really interesting and useful. Um, but some of them are, are not useful. So um, I think uh, to me, that didn't really feel like where I wanted to, to spend my, my time. I wanted to be building things. Um, I think the, the fact that I'm a self-taught designer kind of shows that I've always been a tinker um, rather yeah. than being okay with kind of sitting around in spreadsheets, even though spreadsheets are important and a powerful tool. Right. Yeah. What got you interested in math to be your, your line of study in the first place? <laughs> That's one of those things where um, growing up, I, I, I grew up with a, a STEM uh, public school education and mm. also as a, an Asian-American immigrant. So a lot of that was kind of momentum from uh, my parents uh, wanting me to find a stable job, want to be a doctor. And so um, right. I was pretty good. I was pretty good at math. Um, but then when I went to college, I realized that I wasn't as good as I thought it was. So mm, um, yeah. in, in hindsight, I think I would have probably chosen a different major um, and, and designed a different uh, uh, different uh, kind of coursework. Um, but as a freshman in college, it sounded like a cool major. Um, and, right. and, and so um, I, I actually don't feel like my identity is very well aligned with an applied math major. Right. 
Yeah, it feels like, I mean, if you're trying to take like a safe bet of a subject to study, math seems like pretty like, okay, well, there's a lot of different, like, lots of different careers and lots of different highly paid jobs make extensive use of math. So that yeah, makes perfect sense. Yeah, a lot of my classmates sense. actually ended up working at hedge funds, like quant funds. Right. Yeah. So it seems like, yeah, it seems like there's applications, but yeah, I could totally see it also. I kind of, I did a similar thing, but in the opposite direction, I was like, I, I'd been working in doing computer stuff, kind of hacking around um, while I was in middle school and high school. And then when I went to go to college, I'm like, well, you know, I've been doing this computer stuff for a while. And if I want a computer degree, I can always get that. Um, But I'm really interested in music. So music was like the thing I was interested in. All right, let's try to get like a degree in music. Um, And that turned out to be um, probably not equally as impractical as yours. I think your degree was much more practical than that, but it was a similar thing of like, okay, that doesn't, uh, that, that wound up not exactly serving me on the, the direction that I was heading over the long, uh, longer period of time. We all wish we could redesign our educational journey uh, in hindsight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. So after, after the math degree, you went on there, um, you, you became a product manager after that. Is that right? Well, the longer version of the story is that I, while I was still in college, uh, got a job offer uh, from a venture capital firm uh, called RRE Ventures in New York City, and uh, actually still have the DM from from Jim Robinson, uh, one of the managing directors there, uh, over Twitter DM. Uh, I remember uh, cold messaging them and coming in with a whole analysis of their entire portfolio. Uh, and they're like, who who the hell is this kid? And Mm -hmm. uh, I was lucky in the right place at the right time. And they were looking for, for an analyst. And so I actually got horrible grades in college, my junior and senior years and took the train up and, and was their full-time analyst. Um, uh, and, and so that was actually my, uh, initial, uh, entry into the startup world. Um, so did a lot of deal sourcing and meeting with new startups and we made a lot of different investments. And, uh, one of the investments that we made, the portfolio, C- the, the founder, the CEO was like, well, what are you, what are you doing here as a VC analyst? Like you're a builder. And so why don't you come work for us? And I was like, okay, let, let's, that sounds like a cool idea. And so worked as a product designer at, at this company called hot potato. Um, and, mm. uh, this is back during the location craze, the direct consumer, uh, location craze. And so um, we were building a, an app to help people not check into locations, but rather tell people what they're doing. Uh, so actually, um, post acquisition by Facebook uh, became kind of the status update field, where you can say, I hey, see. what are you doing? And then you can tag it with different structured data, like location, or who you're with, or uh, those kinds of things. So um, kind of flip the idea of checking into a location on its head. Cool. That's a that's a pretty big, pretty big observation or, or pretty big uh, innovation there. Of uh, yeah, it's really really interesting to think about. Like uh, in the early stages of like like even something like the status uh, like update is like that was like somebody had to invent that. So it's really it's really cool to hear. Um, and it's really interesting to hear sort of your you got sort of almost like uh, drafted as a as a VC uh, analyst. It, do you remember back or were there anything specific that you were doing at that time? Do you think sort of caught their, caught their attention? Well, like I said, part of, part of it, part of it was in being in the right place at the right time. And part of it was, uh, kind of sheer persistence. Um, and, uh, at the time, the kind of idea of a VC analyst program was, uh, still pretty nascent. And, uh, there weren't there weren't as many firms and there weren't as many junior VC roles out there, um, so they had one analyst and it was a two year stint and that per, that analyst had just finished her two year stint. So I had no idea that they were looking for somebody uh, and had been uh, looking for somebody yeah. for quite a, for quite some time. And so like when I reached out, um, it was also on Twitter at the time when not as many people were using Twitter. And so uh, they were, op- and even today, like Twitter is an awesome place to get people who wouldn't have responded to you to respond to you. Um, and I would say the last, so it's, it's a combination of that kind of luck and persistence. But the final piece of it is, I think, uh, doing the job that I uh, wanted uh, before uh, and to show them that I could do the job. 
Um, and there's a fine line between doing spec work for free uh, versus um, uh, uh, showing that you can do something. Um, but I was really, really passionate about um, uh, entrepreneurship and, and the, the investing in startups and kind of thinking through different companies. And uh, I actually showed up with like a SWOT analysis, like a very MBA uh framework for analyzing companies that just found online. Um, so I was doing my own kind of online MBA style research um, right. uh, without, without anybody telling me to. Um, and and to, going back to how we started this conversation was like, I was feeling this like existential questioning of whether or not I wanted to be a quant at a hedge fund. And, mm-hmm. in the, and, and, and so I was doing this on the side. So I was still, so um, I went to Princeton, and it's heavily recruited at by uh, all the big investment banking firms and management consulting firms um, and, and hedge funds. And I was going to all the super days. I was doing the interview processes, putting my suit on, uh, going into the skyscrapers uh, in Manhattan. And every single time I showed up, I would be like, I would just feel this like existential questioning. I was like, why? Why am I here? And right. at one point, I still remember this. I actually just, in the middle of a super day, it's like a full day thing, um, decided, hey, like, I, I don't really want to do this anymore. So I actually excused myself and, and, and uh, said respectfully withdrew myself from the process. And that, like, I don't, I, in hindsight, like, that was such a stupid, I, stupid thing to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I need a job. Um, right. But, uh, I just, and it's like, like you're I, so close to the end. It's like, it's like one day, it's like people who have like two credits left that drop out. Yeah. Um, but I think it but goes just, to show, like you're saying, like how off that felt. Like you was just like, I can't stand like another moment of this. I have to get out of here. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, the irony of it is now that uh, people reach out to me or uh, even a few years after uh, people reach out to me and be like, hey, like I've been working at Insert Investment Bank. I want to get into startups. How did you do it? Right. And I'm like, honestly, like, I mean, it's talk to people, but like, just go do it. Um, and uh, I think that that's uh, obviously it's a different world now. Um, and uh, it, it's much more of a, industry um but uh at the time it was kind of sheer brute force um and just trying a lot of different things and and i got lucky yeah i've heard that story in a couple of different variations as far as like how people got their first you know quote unquote break into the startup world and a lot of times it is something like you described and this was the same for me of like you find that job that you want to do and you research it online and then you basically like try to do the job externally um to get in front of somebody to just demonstrate that like because it's very hard in a startup environment it's very hard to show unless you have a history of doing the work. Um, like, how do I know that this person's going to be good at it? And it seems like that approach is really effective. I do understand, like, you, you sort of pointed out, like, we're going to be a little bit careful about doing, like, a bunch of work for free and, uh, you know, be, be mindful of spec work. But at the same time, it's, like, it's very difficult to tell if someone's going to be good in that sort of startup role or even, you know, in the VC analyst role or any of those things. Like, until somebody demonstrates some expertise there, you're kind of taking a bet. And when you see somebody that actually does work actually seeing anybody that does any sort of work is a huge differentiator of like people taking the initiative owning the project figuring it out and then showing up with a final project that's like feels to me like what 90 percent of running a startup is of like so when you find if you can demonstrate that in the interview process that seems really valuable and i'm not surprised i don't did you when you were when you did that for the VC firm, did they give you any like specific feedback around how unusual that was, or were they just kind of pretty cool about it through the, through the process? No, they were very clear that uh, it, I was the first and only person to ever do that, and that was a and so like now that I am an employer myself, I put myself in their shoes and I can see why somebody who shows up having done some of the work already and shows that they can do the work is um can be refreshing uh because you as an employer one of the biggest fears is that you make the wrong hire you train this person up and three months later they're the wrong person and you've wasted three months and uh you got to go find a new person which takes another uh, one to three months 
and and it's a lot of wasted time and money. And so if somebody shows up and has de-risked a lot of that for you, then it's much easier to make the call. So uh, for those who are looking to quote break into the industry, I still get a lot of emails saying, hey, like, can you get on a call? I wanna ask your advice. And as much as I would like to help people uh, who I see were, are currently in where I was, um, I just don't have enough time. So um, I try to carve out some time for these types, types of calls, but that that time always goes to people who show a bit more uh, uh, proactiveness. And I can, and already doing things and I can just kind of help guide and hone instead of somebody who's just like starting from nothing and saying, hey, tell me what to do. Yeah. What's funny, because I'm sure the advice that you get a lot in your, your position is like, the way for you to be more effective is to say say no more and be more discreet with your time so it's almost like you know the advice that you would give to them is like hey go and go and do you know whatever it is that you're trying to do like figure it out get it to the next step and so it's almost like you know the common advices are are <laughs> at odds with not necessarily at odds with each other but you know if they're reaching out to you to get your feedback on hey what do i do next um well hopefully you can just you know send them this interview or something else that you've recorded be like hey well just like go do the go do the job um it fe- feels kind of obvious in retrospect but it's a lot of work and i i think that you know i think it's easy to underplay like a I'm sure you spent like probably dozens of hours like doing the between the online research and putting the presentation together and researching all their portfolio companies. It probably was no no small task to do that. So not to undersell it, but well, I think yeah, the other to your thing point, to, the other thing to uh, and this is a bit harder and a bit more philosophical, but I think the thing that will serve you well in both the short term as well as the long run is to do things because you are genuinely interested in it yourself um, rather yeah. than doing something, putting together a SWOT analysis or, or putting together, creating a, a, a sample app design or a, a mock portfolio. If you were an investment analyst at a venture capital firm, like mm-hmm. you should do those things because you actually enjoy doing them. Not because right. the job itself is the end itself. Uh, I think if you're doing something that's interesting and you'd personally find interesting, you, you will find that the, uh, you're more motivated uh, to, to keep going um, rather than, doing something only because I want to work at the top VC fund in the world or the top startup in the world. And then I get rejected by that company. And then suddenly I'm like out in the streets and I'm like crying and, and, and because my entire sense yeah. of achievement was based on, on, on that job. Right. Um, and so like, uh, again, as, as an employer now, I recognize that like the people who um, have, have that self-directed um, sense of uh, what they're good at and what they're curious about. Those are the people that, um, either through correlation or causation, I'm I'm generally most interested in, in working with. Yeah, I, I think the only thing that's that's worse for those people who, if they dream of working at the top VC firm and they they get rejected, and the only thing worse than that is that if you get the job and then you realize you hate it, <laughs> and <then> it's like, <laughs> oh man, that sucks. So I think that's like the flip side of you know, like you said, if you actually enjoy doing the work or. Maybe if you're not sure if you'll you'll enjoy doing the work, um, that was me. Like product management was kind of my first step into being a startup and or, or join, being a startup, uh, joining a joining a startup and kind of getting into that journey. And you just kind of like do the job um, to what you think it is. And I think it's really easy. I think before that, I tried to be like a developer, and it just like didn't stick for whatever reason. And so if I would have you know gone through schooling and I would have like you know trained to be a developer and actually got into a role as a developer that that might not have that might not have worked out for me and maybe it would have turned me off to startups altogether um i think that's great advice to like you know look at the try the work and see if you enjoy it or if you figure out what you like to do and then figure out how to apply that and it's going to yeah. be totally great that's going to be way more way more effective um communicating who you are i think yeah i think following that approach also uh uh, generally leads to a more uh, holistic approach or cohesive approach to different things. And so what I mean by that is that uh, I think the way that you level up at, in any functional role, whether you're a product manager or a product designer, or you're in sales, or you're, you're, you're in uh, customer success, uh, I think uh, understanding how your function relates to other functions uh as well as the overall business goals 
is uh, one of the most important ways that you can level up. Uh, and, and so uh, a concrete example of this is that, um, and this is kind of relating to your question of like, what is my background and my strange background of having, of kind of balancing the, the anal uh, highly analytical um, quant uh, driven approach with the uh, uh, kind of creative side uh, and, and, and design and product design and branding um, is uh, that earlier in my career, I had fewer tools in my tool belt and as a result would take my hammer of design or my hammer of spreadsheets and modeling and try to solve every single problem that existed out there. But the problem was is that if you only approach, let's say a product design problem from a user experience perspective, but you don't take into account what are the business constraints or what are the business goals? Um, maybe what, I, I think uh, you, you, it's very easy to end up um, opti overly optimizing on uh, kind of a local maximum of what is the best possible user experience. But in a startup, you're always limited by constraints. So spending time on building the best possible user experience may not actually be the uh, best use of your time, unless, of course, you're in a space that the best possible user experience is the unique differentiator. So uh, I, I think like that's just one of many examples where um, I think following your curiosity rather than being bucketed into saying, hey, I'm a product manager or I'm a product designer. Uh, uh, can can really help um, build that sense of self um, rather than just like I am yet another product manager who is replaceable, uh, easily replaceable with another one, whether they be a candidate or another candidate in the interview process or or within the company. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Did, did you when you transitioned from the analyst role into the you know the product role, did you did you have the mindset like what you just described at that point in time, or is this something that you sort of learned as you know in the process of transitioning from um, the VC role into the into the product role? This is definitely a learning that I've been only been able to ver verbalize in hindsight. I, I I can't claim that it was like a deliberate set of decisions <laughs> that I was making. I mean, broadly, I knew the framework of like. Hey, I want to get a wide range of experiences. I think they're related. I think it'll be really useful to see both sides of the table. Um, so, so I, I guess, like in hindsight, yes, like uh, that was part of the thinking. But it wasn't until now that I verbalized why it's so important. Cool. And then, what was it? I think you covered this a little bit. I'm just curious, like, what was it about that pitch of like, hey, like, you know, you know, you're not. You shouldn't spend your time being an analyst. Like now is the time to build. Like, what was that? Was it as simple as that? To, as far as getting you over, or was there something else about that opportunity that you're like, yeah, this is something that I I really want to give a try? Or maybe like you said, it's something that felt into fell into your like, oh, these are like the you know the skill sets that I enjoy doing, and this is like the area where I like to to sp spend my focus. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, um, and I think it is a common question that I've been asking myself throughout my career as I jump back and forth between the operator and the investing world. And uh, I want to preface this by saying that there are mul multiple uh, paths to success. So, uh, but for me specifically, it, I think it was less that this person convinced me that I should leave the venture world and go into the product design world. And it was maybe more of a identification of, of, of a feeling that I was already having. And I was like, wait a second, I actually was maybe trying to deny this. But when you point it out, I'm actually, uh, you're actually right. Um, and uh, so uh, I think behind all of it was this feeling that um, for me, my path at the time early in my career wasn't to um, uh, go all in on the investment route. I mean, I faced this same challenge going between uh, being a partner at a venture firm and starting a company. Uh, I felt like you would think, hey, like you're a, you're a GP at a, at a venture firm, you've kind of made it, just keep going, raise another fund, keep raising larger funds, invest in more companies. 
but for me, there was some, I felt like it was too early in my career to, to be a, a full-time investor and commit the rest of my career to it. It's not like it would be a bad choice. I'm sure it would have been, it would have been great, but it felt like my learnings and my success, if I'm lucky enough to have it, would be a result of other people's work. And would right. and, and 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 I feel like and that'll always be the case as an investor. Uh, as much as investors like to claim that, oh, I'm, I help so much. For some investors, right. that's true. Yeah. They do help a lot, but it is primarily the founder and the team's work. And so, as an investor, especially with somebody who has who had a few years of product design experience under my belt, professional product design experience under my belt. I didn't feel like I was adding very much to these companies. So at, um, at best, I was passing along knowledge that I had heard from other successful founders to other founders right. who were looking for that advice. So making connections, which is useful. At worst, I was simply a, a capital allocator. And again, there's nothing right. wrong with that, right? Um, there are plenty of people who love doing that, are really good at doing that, but that wasn't my identity. So um, that was one of the kind of career underlying drivers for, there are many reasons why I, I did it, but uh, uh, one, one of the more secondary reasons when I think about it my, from my career perspective, why I decided to go down the founder route. Yeah, I think that's really... It's really like wise to have that thought process because I think it's difficult to it's difficult to have that like third you know it's like the third person view of yourself and I think it's really easy to especially in my kind of where I sit as far as seeing a lot of businesses metrics and providing them advice and even talking to them about like how do you think about your metrics and how do you how do you kind of model that onto like the operator world like how do how do the numbers that you see on the screen, how can you use that information to in some way make your business more money? And so I see a lot of people that provide, um, you know, from my estimation, like a lot of pretty, pretty bad advice or like advice that's like not nuanced. Um, and I don't think those people are like trying to provide bad advice. I don't think they know that they're they're doing it. Um, I, I think it's the, the thought that you had, and, and uh, while I was thinking even about myself, like I think back, you know, even like, like, you know, back like 12 years ago, I was like trying to provide people business advice. And I was like, I had no business <laughs> business doing that. <laughs> like, I had no idea what I was doing. But um, yeah. so I think it's really cool and interesting that you you had that, you know, visibility of like, hey, you know, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know how you would even characterize it. It was kind of like I could be providing better advice or I could be it's almost like you're like there's a better way for me to like maximize my ability to like what I put out in the world and yeah being and I think like, I think this industry is a built de facto around bank is not it <laughs> yeah yeah I think this industry is built around like to me so much of venture capital venture investing or startup investing is self-promotion and marketing and mm. there are a lot of investors out there who are really good at self-promotion yeah but once you take money and they're on your cap table how much do they actually help and to me, that was the existential question that like, sure, I mean, there are plenty of people who were like actually good at marketing and actually helpful who don't have operating experience. But for me, it, I felt like I was uh, in some some days I woke up, I was like, I'm kind of living a lie. I'm out there doing sales for myself, take money from me. And then once you take money from me, maybe I can add some value, but like, it's really based on like, maybe I was privy to some other common com conversation over there. And, and it's also an industry that's based on um, uh, short form tweets that right. uh, drive a lot of engagement. And the way that you drive a lot of engagement is through certainties and bold statements. But building a company, growing a company and a team is not about broad sweeping generalizations. <laughs> There's so much right. nuance that goes into background context where if one critical assumption is different about, and your situation is different from the one that that generalization was based on, you could actually take the opposite incorrect advice. Right. And I've seen this time and time and again through, through my journey as a, a startup founder now. 
and I'm so appreciative of whatever I do next, right? I mean, I've, I'm, I'm uh, in hindsight, I can tell a great story about uh, how I ended up where I am and how the thoughts connect. Looking forward, I don't know what is going to show up next, but I'm glad, I'm really excited that I followed this path because uh, this is exactly what uh, I was looking for uh, from a career perspective is, uh, let, let's say I become an investor again one day. And I do do some angel investing on the side, um, but not really. Uh, it's a full-time job, um, mostly in funds. But um, I, I hope that the way that I approach investing and working with fellow founders is much more of a consultative approach, um, sitting down and talking through, understanding the situation, and, and helping to think through the problem. Um, rather than starting with the conclusion um, and, and saying, you must do that, because that's, that doesn't help the founder either, right? Uh, I'm not here to give them a prescriptive step-by-step uh, uh, -step instructions of, of what exactly to do to, to solve their problem. Yeah, what, what I think a lot of like non-operator VCs, like I think the step that they that they can miss having not gone through it. It's like, sometimes you give advice and so, even if it's good advice and to your point, I think context is so important. And I totally agree that given the context one, like basically any piece of advice given a different context is like the exact wrong thing to do. Right. Um, but I think it's also like thinking about like, well, why, um, why aren't they doing that thing? Or, you know, you hear things like whatever, like, Oh, you should, if you have a customer that, uh, is paying you a lot of money, but they're a huge pain. Like you should fire that customer or whatever. That's a, uh, they make probably a piece great of advice. LinkedIn I, posts. Yeah. But it's like, well, why isn't they, I think the the piece that they don't connect is like, well, why aren't they doing that? And what's holding you back? And sometimes like the thing that's holding you back is not like the logic of the decision. It's like, well, we need that money or like whatever. It's like, you know, there's, right. there's kind of the emotional side, the like rational rationalization of what you're doing. So I think that, the best people that I see on that VC side understand the psychology of being a founder and kind of understand, um, they can help you out with both sides of like, Hey, like, yeah, I get that's hard and you need to work through it. I think they also help you with like, well, nobody, nobody cares. Like you have to, you have to make this decision. Um, and it's yeah. just a little bit different when it comes from somebody who's been through it before versus like somebody who's just like, well, where's my, where's my money? Like I want my, yeah, I want some, my return. Some of my favorite, investors are those who have been there before and are a gut check. I tell them, I, I talk right. through the situation. I talk through how I'm feeling and they don't say, don't tell me how you're feeling because this is a business. They like acknowledge how difficult it is. And yeah. then they give me a gut check. It's like, yeah, I mean, given the information that feels like the right decision. And so often uh, you don't have perfect information and, and there maybe sometimes there are no good options. You're just choosing the least bad option. So right. it's incredibly helpful to, to have somebody there who's a sounding board and can say like, yeah, I think, I think, I think this is, the, I, this is, I think this is what I would do too. Yeah. Or the opposite. Like, Hey, I think you're like wimping out. Like, I think you need to have a, you're doing sure. this complicated thing because you don't want to have a challenging conversation. I think you just need to have the challenging conversation. I think that's like, that's a sage feedback that you, um, I, I don't. I don't think that fits into a LinkedIn post. I don't think. I don't think that's like a very good tweet. Um, but I think a lot. I mean, if we were, if we did have to generalize, I, I would say that having a difficult conversation is probably the solution to a majority of the issues that you run into um, from a startup, whether it's with your customer or with a coworker or a competitor or whoever it is. Like that's usually the the start of a good of a good solution from a leadership perspective. Yeah, the point of difficult conversations is really important. I always tell our team, and it's my personal philosophy, that um, running towards difficult conversations is my MO. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm running around picking fights with people. Right, it, right. It's, it's a... Uh, hey, chump, get over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's when there's something that's kind of nagging at you or something that uh uh somebody did that that you feel um uh frustrated by it's more mm -hmm. important to to run towards that conversation even though it is more difficult it is more difficult than saying nothing in the short term but in the long term it'll fester into something and then it'll just either explode or wimp, like go out with a whimper uh and you'll you'll be left wondering what happened uh, i always tell people that hey like i'm 
I'm bringing this up because I care about a relationship and it would be easier for me to say nothing. So the fact that I'm doing something that's harder shows that I care about a relationship and right. I want us to move forward together because the, the, the moment that you don't say what's on your mind, that idea lodges into your brain and you start to tell these mm -hmm. stories about that person. Oh, this person's lazy or this yeah. person is uh, uh, inconsiderate. There are all these judgment terms. And as soon as that lodges in your brain, you, you start, you start to subconsciously look for examples that prove that point. And so this idea of um, concealing versus revealing your thoughts, I think is a really powerful, uh, powerful uh, framework. And this is not just true for personal uh, and work relationships, uh, but also for business uh, uh, challenges. Uh, it, it's, it's so easy to, and again, this goes back to like my early days of like product design as my only tool in my tool belt is, right. um, I, and you, you'll probably hear this time and time again from, from, from founders, uh, which is that if you were to go do it again, I would have focused much more on distribution. I mean, the term product market fit has two parts of it, right? It's product and market. And so often uh, new founders and new builders, uh, maybe a designer who's trying to become a founder for the first time or engineer become a founder for the first time. It's so easy to do what's comfortable. So you sit down in front of your desk with your coffee in the morning and you have a million things to do. It's so easy. It's just human nature to do things that are well-defined and I know that I can do, but, right. uh, it's, it's, uh, it's important to fight that urge and focus on things that, uh, you know, are going to be important for the business. So again, running toward the things that are uncomfortable, um, because that's uh, what's most important. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I'd love to hear about, you know, when you went from the, um, well, actually maybe I, I might not have the timeline, right? So you were, you were in the, um, um, the product role, and then that company was acquired. Were you still at the company when that product was acquired? Yeah, so both of the companies, startups that I worked at, um, were acquired while I was, I was at the company uh, in quick succession. Nice. So um, it was right place, <laughs> right place at the right time, um, and uh, kind of kind of a whirlwind of uh, of, a, of a time. But uh, yeah, that 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 was uh, that was an interesting experience. Cool. Did you? Um... Did you work at the acquiring companies? I'm, I'm thinking about the transition that you made from working in those product roles into starting your own business. I'm kind of curious, like, when did that happen? And what was sort of like the motivation that said, like, okay, cool. Like, I think I want to, like, start my own business. So the timeline was that both of those startups, Hot Potato and then Dropio, were acquired by the same company, Facebook. Mm. And... Uh, I had offers to go out west and and join the Facebook team as a probably an entry level uh, or maybe one level above product designer, uh, and that was one of the major crossroads in my life. Not only geographically, I was living in New York City at the time, but also functionally in terms of my role. That's when I went into the VC world and kind of started the journey. Well, I guess technically I started my VC journey while I was in college, but I started in VC, then went back, then went into product design and then went back into the venture world. So that was probably the main crossroads though. I could have uh, kind of rose up the ranks through uh, at Facebook as a product designer uh, or did what I did, which is go into the venture world, which kind of uh, culminated in, in uh, uh, being a GP at a, at a venture firm uh, and, and it, being lucky to invest in some great startups. So um, that, that was kind of the, that was the, uh, I did not go to the uh, acquiring company uh, in favor of being a VC. Cool. And then, so you, then you, you went into the VC world for a while, but then you, we already had this conversation. I'm remembering now. So you're like, okay, cool. Like this, like the VC, like, um, I was gonna say the VC lifestyle. That's not exactly how you characterize it, but like that—that that approach to work didn't really fit with you, and you realized that 
you know, you wanted to, you wanted to dive back in and kind of, you know, get more hands on. I'm curious, like, what was, what was that process like for you? And how did you make that decision that it was like, um, you know, I kind of want to move on past this, this VC role into, um, you know, getting, getting my, getting my hands dirty again, so to speak. Well, it helps to understand some context of the VC firm as well. So the firm was called Red Swan Ventures, and uh, it was started by uh, two two guys, Andy Dunn and Dave Eisenberg. Um, and Andy is uh, uh, known for starting Bonobos, um, and, and Dave uh, actually has gone on to have his own real estate uh, tech fund uh, called Zig Capital. But at the time, he was a founder as well. So, um, and then I had I, I had those two guys as partners, and then another uh, guy named Dave Averro, um, and uh, the three of them are full full time founder CEOs. And that was our kind of value proposition in the market. To our earlier conversation, is somebody you can talk to who's in it uh, at the same time as you and has the experience uh, as a as a complement to the traditional VC funds who are your lead investors. And w- through that model, I mean, this was even before the term like pre-seed existed. Um, we invested in some great companies. And so I was the full-time managing partner of the fund and um, went on and raised a VC fund. And, and uh, uh, so, uh, but I, w- I was full-time and, and those guys were, were running companies full-time. And honestly, I was a little bit jealous. I, I wanted to, uh, I think it was awesome to see not only their day-to-day building a company, but also the impact that they were having in conversations with founders that we had invested in or we had not invested in yet. There was a very clear difference between the conversations I was having with founders and the ones that they were having. Uh, and And so... Um, that was definitely uh, something that I was thinking about, but I definitely still enjoyed investing. It wasn't an easy decision. Uh, and uh, what we uh, deployed the capital, invested it fully in about three years, uh, pretty standard. These days, probably even faster than that. Uh, and we were at a crossroads. Do we want to raise the same size fund, raise a larger fund, or shut it down? And uh, it, 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 I, we already talked about this before. I mean, I, I just felt pretty strongly that, uh, I wanted to go down the, the founder route. So, um, that, that's, that's kind of the, one of the reasons why, uh, and, and how it happened. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I can imagine from your position being the full-time managing partner and then watching other people, uh, like they, they kind of. Uh, this is kind of an oversimplification, but they kind of get to show up and do the fun stuff on the VC side and like you're doing all the work and then you get to see them go run a company. I could see that being like, oh, well, yeah, that's really cool. I want to do that. Uh, (laughs) Was there like a a specific idea that like pulled toward you or did you you start with, all right, I want to be a founder and then started to do some, you know, uh, customer development or what was sort of the flow of like getting into that business? It was a combination of two different things. It was a, it's a personal problem that I care a lot about, uh, which is uh, democratizing uh, access to financial advice, um, as well as we, we had invested in a number of companies in the fintech space. So we were probably better known for our branded commerce investments, so like Warby Parker, um, but uh, uh, we also had a pretty substantial fintech portfolio. So everything from uh, Coinbase to Guideline, Oscar Health. Um, so uh, was really excited about fintech um, back when it was kind of an old, perceived as an old stodgy industry, um, but, but saw the opportunity to, of, of not only new point solutions uh, like robo advisors and refi companies and, and early paycheck and you name it, uh, to, uh, as well as the emergence of infrastructure. Uh, Plaid is probably the, the, the poster child of that. Uh, to solve these problems that have existed for a long time in a completely new way. And so I mentioned that this is a problem that's personally important to me. Um, And uh, I was actually born in Taiwan, and so I'm an immigrant and have the classic uh, Asian-American immigrant story. Uh, And so so, uh, my parents moved, me and my siblings, uh, to to the U.S. uh, and 
uh, for, for base for the for opportunity and um, uh, but they didn't know any English didn't have very much money and so uh, when I graduated from college I had a ton of student debt you know, first job out of college had a 401k had all these different health insurance plans stock options through work which turned out to be impactful because of those acquisitions and and I was just overwhelmed and and I did my best to learn, went to the University of Google and read all the different articles, but still made all the mistakes and a bit ashamed in hindsight uh, for making all those mistakes. But I think that's the reality is that there's so much shame around uh, around personal finances. Everybody thinks that other person is doing uh, has their has their personal finances figured out. And it's also a culture of consumerism. And finally, with all these different decisions that we have to make. It's an industry of complexity, oftentimes intentionally so. So it's really hard to make decisions as an individual. Our education system hasn't caught up. And financial advisors, the way that they're currently built and structured, the status quo, are limited only to those who already have money. So this is a problem that was really personal to me. And I, I saw an opportunity to to solve this problem in a completely new way. So it was kind of the confluence of, of timing as well as personal passion and, and, and uh, experience that led to solving this specific problem. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I agree, well, obviously now that you say it, it's like, yeah, it does kind of have that feeling that you sort of look around in the same way that you might with like social media, you might look around to other people who are apparently successful and, and make the assumption that their personal finances are uh, in order or, you know, well put together. But I'm sure that's like uh, probably not the case in a lot of scenarios. And it does also feel like one of those systems where it's almost like the better that you do financially, like, like the fact that you had windfalls from uh, being a part of those startups. And like you said, it's kind of like a, it's a relatively rare thing that, you know, options are worth anything. Um, and like, it's almost like a, an issue that you had because there was an aspect of success. So it's kind of almost like people work really hard to, to get these sort of results and, and get these, um, you know, get these outcomes. Um, and then it's like, oh, well, crap, what do I do now? Like, like you actually did the thing that you were trying to do. Like, well, how do you manage that? I, I always thought about that from like a, um, like a winning the lottery scenario. And everybody says that they would take the lump sum payment over getting the annuity. But I'm like, I don't know where I would put that. Like, I like even just trying to think through, like, what would I even do if I had a hundred million dollars given to me? Like, where do you put like, can you put that much in a bank account? You know, it's just like even all those thoughts. So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting space. Yeah, um, I, I did not make a hundred million dollars from from being part of those two okay. startups. Um, <laughs> Good clarification. Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> the, um, I would add on to that and say that it's not just for the scenario that you actually do make money from your stock options, but it's every single financial decision that you have to make. How much do I put into my retirement account? How much, how do I balance that with paying off my student debt? Maybe I'm stuck in credit card debt. And then for equity, it's when I'm looking ahead and I have no idea whether or not the company I'm at is going to be successful. How do I make a decision there? And right. if I exercise my stock options, what are my tax liabilities? Um, right. Or if I receive RSUs, what are my tax liabilities? There are all these, and so not to continue connecting dots, but um, it all seems to come together is this is essentially what my college major was. Right. You have stock yeah. options and we learned how to price stock options academically. We learned the, the, the Black-Scholes formula, how to derive it in, in college. And not only that, how do we predict um, how do we chart out possible future paths of a stock options value? Um, it could go down, it could go up, it could go in the middle. There's some randomness component to it. Um, how do you gather the right information about the company's performance and make your own conclusion about your, the, the prospects of the company being successful? Maybe you left your company and uh, now you have oftentimes 90 days to decide whether to, to, to exercise and purchase your stock options, which in some cases can be an incredible amount of money to, to cost to exercise your stock options. Is it worth it? Right. So this is one of many examples um, that are much more common even than when the best case scenario happens, which is that uh, you do get to uh, have a big windfall.
Yeah, that's a great point. It's I suppose in those scenarios when there is some sort of success, um, you still need to figure out what to do with that money and, and how to manage it properly. But it's a little bit more clear. Um, certainly seems like the case of like when you're dealing with uncertainty, that's really the hard part. And I think that yeah. scenario that you mentioned of like, you know, you have 90 days to exercise options and it could be, you know, thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. It could be a lot of, lot of money out of your pocket. Yeah. Um, and who knows, like, what's that? what that's worth and did you get a good deal and all that sort of stuff so yeah yeah um the thing about and uncertainty you have, there's a timer is, timer's ticking too sure yeah the thing about uncertainty in financial decisions or any decision is that there's a behavioral psychology component to it and uh whether you call it like the paradox of choice or analysis paralysis or um but mm-hmm. when, when there's a lot of complexity and a lot of different trade-offs that you have to make which is the name of the game for personal finances it's so easy to just do nothing like I'm overwhelmed with information. I'm just going to not do anything. But the problem is that doing nothing is actually doing something. It is making a choice. It could be that you uh, leave too much money in your checking account and you don't save. Or right. it could be that, like me, I gave up trying to understand the student loan portal and ended up enrolling in a 30-year payment plan designed to squeeze as much interest out of me as possible. I logged right. in like three or four years later, I realized that I hadn't many, making many payments to my principal. Right. And at the time, I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know what an amortization, amortization schedule was like that's, uh, so it's, it's, um, uh, and that's only just for one type of financial decision. Then when you add on, do I invest or save or pay off my student loans, your brain kind of explodes and you just do nothing, right? But the problem with this space right. is that you got to make decisions early on for the power of compounding interest to, to work its magic. Yeah, that's a lot. So everybody listening and, and me too, we're all kind of sweating right now. We're like, oh man, yeah, it's true. And I've been putting off and, uh, you know, let's just say like, oh, are we maxing out our Roth IRA contributions? And you just go, you go down the rabbit hole and, you know, is it better to put money in one place versus another one? And then, you know, we, everybody has, this is not our full-time job. It's yours, but you know, it's like, we're like, hey, like, you know, um, you have other things to focus on. You're so right. It's just like really easy to be like, you know what? I'm just going to ignore it I'm we, gonna, made, we know, made it give... our full-time job so you don't have to make it your full-time job yeah yeah exactly um well cool as we as we kind of like uh bring this uh you know chat in for a landing i'd love to just hear like kind of like what's going on with like current day with the company like what are you maybe looking forward to um you know kind of what's what's on your mind currently and then obviously if you know i, I think we've we've teed it up unintentionally, but if you want to give, you know, a little bit of a, a pitch or call to action to people, I think anybody who's in the relevant space is already kind of sweating. It's like ready to, ready to reach out to you. But yeah, just kind of curious, you know, what's going on. We, we've, we've gotten your, your history pretty well. So um, bring us up to current day. Like, what are you, what are you thinking about? Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't uh, explain this at the beginning of the podcast, but um, North Star is a, a financial advice company. And we primarily partner with employers uh, to give their employees access to the best uh, financial advice possible. And we do that through mm. a combination of pairing you with a certified financial planner uh, who can work with you through a financial plan, tax advice, investment advice, and advice about your comp and benefits. So if you have any questions about choosing the right health insurance plan or uh, understanding your equity compensation, uh, we have all that information from your employer already. And, we, and so basically we can be kind of that perfect in-between partner for both the employee as well as the employer. Uh, so that's kind of the high level what we do. We, we work with some great uh, companies like Workday, Snap, Zoom, um, Discord, NerdWallet. Um, so it, it's been it's been really awesome to kind of build this new model of, of what financial wellness looks like because um, one thing important thing that we don't talk about enough is that employment is the primary source of wealth creation. We work to make a salary and as well as receiving so many great benefits like your retirement plans, healthcare, um, and oftentimes we don't know how to best take, make most advantage, take most advantage of it. So, uh, that's, that's kind of where we sit, um, and the value that we provide. Um, and most importantly, uh, is that we're democratizing access to that financial advice. No longer do you need to pay hundreds, if not thousands of dollars uh, a month, uh, to, to get access to a financial advisor. 
so we've we've built a really incredible technology that helps us uh, provide this advice, uh, personalized advice yet scalably. Uh, so so often you've had to choose between one one or the two, right? You either get generic financial advice for free, or you get really customized financial advice for a lot of money. So um, that's kind of the high level of of what we're doing. Um, I'm really excited about um, what's uh, coming up next because uh, when we first started, um, it was still somewhat of a nascent industry. Um, but mm, as I was yeah. saying, like how we've defined what financial wellness looks like delivered through the employer is really resonating. And uh, we feel strongly is foundational to uh, the employee experience. Uh, we believe that every single uh, employment offer should be accompanied with Northstar. You, you wouldn't uh, put together a piece of furniture uh, from Ikea without the instruction manual. Uh, and, and so all those problems and challenges that I mentioned earlier that I faced personally, I know are common and universal for the hundred percent. So um, uh, being able to uh, get more and more employers on board and proving that this model really works. I mean, on average, almost 60% of all employees use Northstar, which is if you're familiar with any sort of benefits that are offered, um, yeah, it does an order of magnitude higher. Um, and so um, it's, it's really exciting to see um, the response for, for what we're doing. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm most excited about. Cool. Yeah. One of the things I saw just like from like an operator perspective when I was doing my, my research before we jumped on this call is I saw you had those like total compensation tools and, and things like that. And it's one of those things like I wouldn't have thought to ask for it, but I feel like that's one of those things where even like as I was joining companies, you, you would always have your salary number and then you would have like this big list of benefits and then potentially, um, you know, uh, some equity or whatever, like other you know, RCs or whatever you're being offered. And um, on the operator side, I'm like, I, I want to communicate what the total compensation of the role is, but that can be challenging for us. And yep. as somebody who was looking for jobs, it's just like really unclear, like, well, what, what am I getting here or you know and then what like what's important to you like maybe yeah. you're um i i know some companies and like companies that i've spoken with they provide like ultra high-end healthcare, yeah. um and they don't realize that because they don't understand what other companies are doing but that's it's so it's something that they don't really when they are talking to potential employees they don't really bring it up they just yeah. like it's like you know and six point font like a hundred percent covered medical or something right. like yeah. that, what does that so mean? yeah it yeah. seems like there's so, there's, this, there's this gap right there's there's a there's a there's a lot of thoughtfulness and money put into benefits and comp design from the employer side yeah. and then the communication of that is lost so an employee yeah. oftentimes sees a higher salary as the only way to achieve their financial goals. And uh, we always say that financial plans are like your life plans. And I think it's pretty incredible that employers these days support such a wide range of different life stages, whether it be, as you were saying, really expensive and incredible health plans, or um, I'll point out SNAP because they have incredible benefits. They have incredible family support benefits from right. the, the moment that you decide that you want to uh, try to have a baby to when the baby actually arrives. Um, so they have everything from uh, adoption and surrogacy reimbursements, fertility and infertility benefits for IVF. Um, and then they have backup child care giving benefits. It's, it's pretty incredible to see what they offer. Uh, and currently, or not currently, before we showed up, the only method they had to communicate that to candidates or, or employees was, like you said, this like kind of benefits booklet. It's like a PDF. But that really wasn't customized to the individual situation. So for somebody right. to be able to come to Northstar and say, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a family, we can actually proactively not only help you with the financial side, so budgeting, figuring out the impact on your personal finances and your financial goals, your retirement goals may, maybe be pushed back, um, needing to save for that child's college education. Um, but but also, hey, like you uh, get these incredible benefits that are really hard to quantify the value of, but if you take advantage of it, can you save you hundreds of thousands of dollars? So building that kind of employer brand of like, hey, like we're a really great place for families um, is something that uh, we, we're excited to, to show more, highlight more and more of. Awesome. Well, well, this is this is really cool. I really appreciate you taking the time, and um, I appreciate you sharing your your story. I think there's a lot um, 
a lot actionable in in the path that you've gone down and i hope um above everything else i, I think the the kind of amount of like introspection and kind of thoughtfulness that I, I i know it's it's in hindsight so you can't take credit for all of it but um that's really something that i would i would kind of urge to especially the people that are thinking about getting into the startup world or they want to start a company i think that that's um if, if people can sort of emulate the process that you went through, I, I think that'd be really solid. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for, for joining and, and sharing all that. Um, we'll obviously have links everywhere, but uh, any sort of specific call outs, if you want people to either follow you or uh, how how can they uh, get in front of Northstar if, if everything that we've been saying has been been resonating with them. Yeah, you can you can find uh, more information about Northstar at northstarmoney.com. Um, and feel free to email me if you, if you have any questions, want to chat. Um, uh, hopefully not just say, Hey, can we, uh, set up a call for me to ask you some advice, uh, a little bit more yeah. <laughs> focus would be helpful, but uh, feel free to email me yeah. directly. It's will at northstarmoney.com. Awesome. Will, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That was our conversation with Will Pang, CEO and co-founder of Northstar. If you need a better way to utilize your compensation and make more informed financial decisions, you know where to go, northstarmoney.com. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at bearmentions.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. And if you're able to share with a friend to leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.